this is, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to Cheap Talk, the IR podcast. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you very much. Hey, guys. I thought today maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, COVID, the um, global pandemic that is certainly affecting our lives right now. And there's kind of an open question, to what extent is this affecting international relations broadly, both in the short term and the long term? I thought maybe we could just have a, a short discussion about that. People are debating whether COVID matters long term for international relations issues. Um, what's the kind of state of the art on that? Thanks, Jeff. It's really a pleasure to be here. So, I mean, the way I look at this is, is essentially there's sort of two big camps, right? So you have one group of people who think that COVID-19, and, and no exaggeration, is similar to 1989, you know, end of the Cold War, Berlin Wall falls down, sort of this monumental event in the, in the international system that basically forever changes uh, how things move forward. Because after the Cold War, you know, we're in this sort of new uh, global order. Uh, things are a lot different than it was uh, previous to the Berlin Wall falling down, obviously, and the, the sort of dissolution of the Soviet Union. So I think a lot of people are looking at uh, COVID-19 as an event like that. And and they, they look at it and they see the United States not doing particularly well with, with containing it. They look at Western Europe as having a lot of problems with responding to, to COVID-19. And on the flip side, you have countries in Asia, China and South Korea and Taiwan, uh, places like that that have, have done actually reasonably well. Uh, and one of the manifestations of, of the crisis there might be that they're showing the world their, their competence, whereas you know, the, the countries that, that sort of traditionally have had power in the international system since about you know, 1945 or so have been more or less incompetent, right? So one of the things you might think is is kind of occurring here is a, is a power shift, in a sense, from and I hate to use these terms, but just sort of broadly speaking, the West to the East, right, where we see, you know, China uh, continuing its rise and, and that this will be, you know, potentially the event that basically puts puts China in the in the driver's seat uh, moving forward. Now, that's that's one group of people. There's a, there's another group of scholars that look at this completely differently and they say, you know, COVID-19 is is a, a problem. Uh, it's a threat to the international system, but it's not unlike other threats that we've had before. We've had, you know, another SARS, we've had AIDS, we've had uh, Ebola, we've had other sort of similar biological uh, problems face the system. We've had, you know, major pandemics like the Spanish flu. Uh, we've had, you know, other other very similar Types of, of viruses and the international system gets over it. You know, it's it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's it's gonna you know be a rough year. It's already been a rough six months or so. Uh, but at the end of the day, we would expect you know the international system to look a lot like the international system that was a, was happening in February before the the crisis really started getting going. And I think the the sort of assumption that that a lot of these folks are, are making is that you know at the end of the day, what what matters in international politics are things that the the virus can't really affect. Right. So we're we're talking about you know state power. We're talking talking about nuclear weapons. We're talking about sort of alliance structures that are unlikely to sort of fall apart just because of a, of a pandemic. And I say just because, I mean, it's a big deal, obviously, but it's not, not powerful enough as a, as a sort of variable to change the way that, that states interact. Uh, and consequently, you know, we're going we're gonna to see basically the return to quote-unquote normal politics in, in the international sphere after COVID's over. The other thing I'll say, sort of, sort of uh, just start the, the conversation, is that 
you know, for, for a lot of folks, the international system is one of, of continuity, right? The change in the international system is actually quite difficult uh, and hard. And I think you've, if you look at the 20th century of, of international politics, what you see is essentially sort of patterns uh, that, that recur over time. And, you know, you might get these sort of exogenous shocks every once in a while. But, you know, at the end of the day, it takes a big shock to, to really fundamentally change the system. And I think a lot of people are just skeptical that a virus, uh, as, as deadly as it is and as contagious as it is, uh, um, is going to be bad enough to fundamentally change the system. And then, of course, you have people that are all, all in between these two sort of uh, poles in, with respect to their, their views. I think a lot of people look at the economic effects of this and say, you know, if nothing else, we're looking at a, a global you know, recession, potentially some countries going into a depression. That will have significant effects uh, depending on where you are in the world. That'll have effects in the United States. That's going to have effects for China. And so the economic nature of this um, might actually be be pretty important. The other thing that people will obviously think about is the role of institutions. We've seen a lot of discussion about the World Health Organization and whether or not it's too political or, or perhaps not political enough and a sort of abdication by many of, of the sort of leading powers in the system of the institutions that we thought were there to kind of help when situations like this arise, right? So the, the development of the liberal order after 1945 was partially about creating stability. It's partially about ensuring you have a, a global trade system that can continue. All the things that, that you know, the sort of founders of that liberal order were trying to, to do seem to be kind of coming undone a little bit with, with this pandemic. And so I think there's a, a fair argument to be made that, you know, that the COVID might be sort of tapping into things that were happening already with respect to, to the liberal order kind of fading away, but uh, is not itself necessarily a, a sort of change agent, uh, if you will, just sort of something that's that's accelerating forces that were already uh, getting going. So anyway, that's that's sort of my take on the broad sort of, uh, I guess you call it topography of of, of that debate. Um, but like with anything, I mean, there's going to be people uh, in international politics, scholars that, that sort of are all over the place with with thinking about this. Yeah, what I, what I think makes this kind of particularly tricky to evaluate as a as a theory of what's going to happen in the future as a prediction is that there's a lot of stuff going on at once. I think as as is always the case, and it's it's a little bit difficult to tease out, you know, what what is happening that that we want to pin on COVID itself, and what is happening that we want to pin on other trends, some of which were already happening before the pandemic. So you already mentioned the the kind of economic fallout of COVID. So on the one hand, you know economic depression and, and great economic change can lead to major changes in the international system. We've seen this before. We kind of know what that looks like. And we've, you know, uh, economic change is something that we've had a lot of over the years. And so we can kind of look back and see what do we expect to see when there's a big economic shock. So maybe some of what we're what we're looking at is really the the economic effects of the pandemic, which doesn't mean they're not real effects, just something that we kind of know how to get a handle on. And other things that we're seeing were trends kind of before the pandemic. And people are arguing, well, maybe those trends are being accelerated by the pandemic, which which seems reasonable. Some of this is kind of the culmination of a number of changes in U.S. foreign policy that we've seen in the Trump administration. For example, uh, stepping back from traditional U.S. alliances um, stepping back from what had been kind of the traditional U.S. role in the world of galvanizing countries to work together in crises. We haven't been doing that in this pandemic. And, you know, is that a result of the pandemic? Well, it's it's kind of a result of the way this administration has, has uh, the approach this administration has taken to the world. Yeah, I think kind of teasing out really where the what's doing the work here in in our changing world is a, a part of the problem or part of the difficulty 
of making these predictions. You mentioned institutions. Let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, the the Trump administration withdrew the United States from the World Health Organization. We just had the news that the um, the U.S. won't be participating in kind of the global vaccine effort um, that's coordinated through the World Health Organization. I mean, what do you think are the are the ramifications of this for insti- institutions, global institutions, after the pandemic? So let's let's be optimistic and think we're gonna we're gonna see an end to this um, early next year. Um, so what happens then? Are the institutions going to kind of snap back to where they were? And if there's a new administration in the U.S., do we just go ahead and rejoin the WHO and, and all as well? Or are there going to be kind of lasting changes here? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those those questions that's really difficult because it, it gets at what you were just talking about, which is, you know, it, it's tricky in this particular instance because a lot of the things that we're seeing with, say, the World Health Organization, we were seeing before COVID, right? So, you know, Trump Trump wins the election. He comes in on a campaign of, of basically populism, uh, you know, make America great again, keep America great again, whatever the, the thing is, and, and America first, right? And part of that meant pulling back from a lot of the institutions that uh, previous administrations had really uh, – Support it. So we think about something like NATO, for example, think about the World Trade Organization, previous administrations, whether it was you know, Bill Clinton or, or Barack Obama, even George W. Bush to a certain extent, you know, strengthened those institutions. So saw the value in having a liberal order uh, in the sense of collective security or, you know, trade agreements or, or things of that nature. And they supported these institutions, you know, because, you know, frankly, the United States gets a lot out of them. Right. So one of the reasons to support a, a, an institution like NATO is you want Europe to be relatively peaceful. You'd rather not see another world war. In, in Europe, um, you want to have some some sort of check on Russian, um, you know, armaments and, and things of that nature, right? So the United States has a strong incentive uh, to, to keep these institutions alive. With the Trump administration, though, uh, for the last three years, they've basically been retreating, you know, not completely from every institution, but enough that that people around the world were kind of looking at it and getting kind of nervous that maybe this is showing that, um, you know, the liberal order, as we've kind of come to, to enjoy uh, with respect to these institutions, is fading a little bit. Now, COVID comes along, and I think it accelerates a lot of those things. And so the question becomes, well, is it is it really COVID that's doing this, or is it is it something else? I think, to answer your question, though, what we're going to see uh, on the other side of this are institutions uh, being rethought a little bit and rethought from two different perspectives. One, my sense is that if you're a European country, you might realize that uh, the Trump administration is is not potentially uh, an outlier, that Trump still has widespread support in the United States. I mean, it's it's not... Um, most of the country, but it's it's a significant uh, number of people who, s- who support it. And so if you're a European country like France or Germany or, or even the UK, let's say, uh, you can't really take the risk that another uh, Trump is going to come along one day, right? That that this populist movement is not going to continue into, you know, the next four years or potentially even, even beyond that. And so one of the things that we might see uh, start to happen are institutions kind of protecting themselves from uh, a potential period of time where the United States is not quite willing to support them at the levels that they once did. Um, and this would have, I think, lots of different effects. One of them would be the United States would simply have less sort of causal power in terms of getting states to do uh, what they want to do through those institutions. We might see states like China, uh, potentially some Western European countries, um, step up and have more of a say for how institutions are designed. I think the World Health Organization that you brought up is a great example of this, where uh, the United States has, has basically said we don't want to be a part of 
of it. We don't want to participate in this this vaccine program. And to a country like China, I mean, that's that's an opportunity for them to, to step up and, and provide more influence and, and more power for that institution. And so we might see a subtle or perhaps not even subtle, an overt shift in the ways that institutions are designed with the rules being written by uh, states other than the United States. And in addition to the what I was just talking about, sort of Western European powers sitting back and saying, well, given that we can't really rely on the United States anymore, or given that we can't really take a chance that we can't rely on the United States anymore, we're going to have to do some things with these institutions to kind of kind of protect ourselves. The only other sort of thing I would mention here, though, that's I think worth pointing out, this conversation is one that, that people have been having for a long time. I remember back in, in 2008, the financial crisis in the United States, all the, you know, the bad mortgages and this and that, you know, people were saying, well, this is going to be the moment where China's going to, you know, really step up and the, and the, the sort of international monetary order that, you know, has been pretty stable from 1945 to, to 2008. We're not going to see that anymore. We're going to have China kind of, you know, rewriting the rules of, of finance, uh, basically bailing out the United States. And what's interesting is they didn't really do that. There was a, there was a moment in time where it looked like China was going to be willing to step up to the plate and, and provide that stability and provide that sort of economic security to the system. But they, they didn't at the end of the day, at least to, in my view. I mean, they sort of they did a couple different things that, that were interesting, but they didn't really take a, a leadership role, financially speaking. And so that, I think, should caution us a little bit to, to make sure that we're not thinking that COVID is, is really um, we're not sort of overestimating the influence that it's going to have. Um, there might be hesitation by some states to, to go and step in for the United States' uh, perceived lack of leadership. Uh, at the end of the day, there's cost to, to being a hegemon, right? There's cost to being the one that's providing, you know, these these the leadership through these institutions. And not every state is going to want to necessarily pay those costs. And so I think this conversation shows that this is a really complicated area where there might be a sort of window opening or a door ajar for other state another state to step into to the sort of international leadership role. But to do that, you have to be willing to do it because there are costs that you have to pay. And I'm just I'm not convinced at this point that there is any particular state that's that's going to be willing to pay those costs. You know, it might not be up to the state that's stepping in as, as to whether they can be the one to provide that kind of security. We often see in economic crises this flight to safety where people want to put their money or maybe their um, security interests in a place where they uh, the strongest power at the time or a place with a good track record of kind of coming through these crises um, without uh, without too much lasting damage. And so we've seen in past economic crises, the flight to the dollar, you know, despite the, the there are potential other reserve currencies out there. But when things get rough out there, where are you going to put your money, put your money in the dollar. And so I, I feel like there's a little bit of, a, of an analogy there to kind of broader security issues where the more uncertain and, and uh, troubling the world seems, the more valuable it is to be a U.S. ally at that time. Um, so it's fine for China to make a decision that they want to be that kind of a player on the international system. But if if others are not willing to uh, share that embrace, then, you know, what can China do about it? You know, we've seen some of the things that China is doing to try to increase influence at this time. This doesn't strike me as a, a real change of course for China. I feel like this is something China's been doing for quite some time. But we see them providing a lot of COVID-related aid to countries, helping other countries out with personal protective equipment, with ventilators, things like this. We had a debate in my in my class um, about this this question. You know, how is this being perceived by the recipient countries? 
Do the recipient countries kind of see this as pretty open attempt by China to gather influence? And do we care? Do they countries care that this is an open attempt by China to, to gather influence? Are they just happy to take the the, the face mask they're getting? Um, so I, I, I think like we, we've seen this going on in the past with Chinese aid in Africa and other places as an attempt to kind of curry favor and increase Chinese influence. And maybe that pays off, maybe not. It's not clear to me that what's going on now is really a change of course there or just, you know, another mechanism by which China can can try to exert influence around the world. I think that's a great point. I mean, as somebody who uh, studies political psychology and sort of looks at the ways in which decision makers, but also just the mass public, you know, sort of think about things, um, you know, perhaps from like an emotional perspective, let's say, there's there's a lot to be said to the idea that you you sort of return at moments of crisis to what's familiar and like sort of what what feels good, right? And so you can make all kinds of, of sort of economic arguments about why, you know, the United States might might be in an okay position in, in COVID uh, because people are buying dollars and, and, and putting their money in the U.S. Uh, but I think you could also make a, a very nice, you know, sort of argument that, that deals with with psychology, which is that, you know, at, at times of crisis, people just they go to what's familiar. And this is why I think, you know, it happens in domestic politics all the time, um, you know, with with uh, sort of rally around the flag effects. When a country has a either a terrorist event or something terrible happens to them, you get to you see these sort of effects where people sort of rally behind that, that which they know. Right. And so where you have somebody whose approval ratings are relatively low uh, and then something happens to the country and you get this sort of moment where people want to sort of rally behind it. I think the same thing can be said of, of, you know, the mass public in the international system where, you know, like it or not, the United States has has been the one to sort of provide these public goods uh, for the system for a long time. They've been behind these institutions for a long time. And there might be a little bit of comfort that people have um, sort of going back to the United States, even with all of the transitions that we've, we've seen over the last couple of years with the Trump administration. There's something about that sort of familiarity and that stability that the United States provides that I think provides at least some level of comfort. And if you're if you're China and you want to uh, sort of be, take a leadership role or, or let's say become the next hegemon or whatever, you're going to have to overcome that as well. So you have to overcome the sort of security aspect of it. You have to overcome the economic aspect. And I also think you have to overcome the psychological aspect, uh, which is, you know, might be one of the ones that's, that's actually trickier uh, to do. One of the big picture issues that I, I don't really know what to think about at, at this point in the in the COVID crisis is the way that we think of the pandemic as kind of a security issue, when in the past pandemics and, and things like this have been really in the in a different category, like this global health issues, but we don't usually think of them as something that impacts international security, or at least I haven't, to the extent of maybe bioweapons and issues around bioweapons. And we talked, you were talking a minute ago about kind of the uh, political psychology of this. What changes when we start to think about the pandemic through this security lens? And is that the kind of thing that we might expect to see a long-term change around based on uh, what's happening with the pandemic right now? Yeah, I mean, this is a very uh, sort of interesting area of, of scholarship that um, a lot of a lot of folks in the the sort of talks about a sort of securitization theory. This idea that you know you can basically take any concept really uh, and and frame it as a security threat. So you know we often see this with climate change. So you know one of the things that happened early on in sort of climate change discourse was you know you, you had scientists coming out and saying, oh, we have to worry about you know ozone depletion and we have to worry about rising sea levels and you know this is a problem for uh, the people 
people that are going to live in these communities. Like, it's probably not a great idea to buy a condo in Miami if you think that the the rising you know sea levels are going to make it you know not not hospitable to live there. Um, and so, eventually, what what people realize though is that this is not just a threat to you know individuals that happen to live in a in a low lying area, but it's actually a threat to the state. Right there, there's literally some some countries in the world that are you know facing um, you know maybe maybe the, their existence is a little bit over overstated, but they're facing very you know severe security concerns with respect to the ability to provide, you know, resources for their their citizens, right? Because if you have droughts, for example, and you can't make food, that becomes a big problem in terms of your ability to continue as a, as a state. So one of the things that gets, that's done is, is people securitize a concept like a climate change, which basically just says this is a bigger threat than any any to any one individual or even a group of individuals. This is, a, is an actual threat to the to the state in the same way another country might be with a, a battalion that's on its way or, or a nuclear weapon might be a threat or a bioweapon might be a threat, we can view climate change in much the same way. Now, you're right that, you know, sort of historically, we haven't viewed viruses and and pandemics of this type in the same way, although there is a little bit of a precedent. So there was uh, a period... Uh, when HIV AIDS was actually, you know, early on when, when AIDS in the, in the 1980s hit the United States, it was very much viewed as a, just a, a biological problem, right? This is sort of a social problem. It affects particular types of communities. We need to go out. We need to make sure that, you know, those communities have, you know, the, the proper therapeutics and, and all that kind of thing. It wasn't really a security threat, though, or it wasn't viewed that way until, you know, the, the early 2000s. The United Nations actually got together and said HIV AIDS is a, is a security threat because this has the potential to wipe out huge numbers. Of, of people. This has a potential to wipe out populations. This has a potential to really wreck, wreck you know, economies and, and so on and so forth. So I think there are a couple of different uh, examples of, of states viewing this type of virus or this type of biological problem as a, as a security threat. And I think the ramification of that is you start to view security threats in, in very different terms. Like it's no, no longer just a medical issue. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that, that COVID-19 has shown us in the United States is that you can have these these medical professionals like Dr. Fauci or, or you know, Deborah Burks or whoever kind of give the medical side of things and explain how the virus works and how it's transmitted and how you can protect yourself and so on and so forth. That's a very different conversation to how the state is, is thinking about what this actually is, right? Once you start viewing it as a, as a security threat to the state, you start mobilizing uh, federal resources. Or I should say, you could start mobilizing federal resources and start you know, using existing legislation to, to treat it like it was a war, right? And so that's, that's part of the debate in the United States in a way, and that's, that's part of the debate in, in other countries as well, where, where uh, if you view this as a security threat that has the potential to, to wreak havoc, you might treat it as... Um, something that that requires a warlike response. And interestingly enough, I think in the United States, that's that's sort of what the debate is, has been about. Whether you like Donald Trump or not, you know, one of the things that that we can think about is his his approach to this. Did he sort of take a, a stance that this was something that he needs to go to war with, right? Or he needs to go to war against COVID nineteen? He used those words, but I think a lot of people would look at what he actually did, and and you know look at the sort of federalist you know, perspective of pushing it out to the governors and, and not, not viewing it as a sort of threat to the United States that required a federal type of response, which is interesting because I think a lot of, of countries went the other direction and they said, no, this is actually a threat to um, our, our lifestyle. This is a threat to our economy. This is a threat to our people. We're going to have a strong, centralized federal response. That's not what happened in the United States. That's not what happened in places like the UK necessarily, but other countries did, did go in that direction. And, and ultimately, I think they actually did a little bit of a better job. So Maybe securitization is is linked uh, to state response in as much as as the way that we think about it as as being a a warlike uh, time, a warlike effort required to, to overcome it. 
Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there is a a kind of downside to the securitization story, where by treating this new issue area as a security threat, you get some of these negative effects that come with um, thinking of something as a threat to your society um, instead of just thinking something as a as a scientific or technical matter. I think there's no question. I mean, one of the things that happens, uh, one of the examples that I, I like to use in my class is HIV AIDS in Africa. And what happens is once it becomes securitized, you basically are saying we have a threat to the state, right? We have this this particular um, virus that is posing a threat to, to our country. We need to attack that threat as, as we would an incoming army or, or, you know, a nuclear weapon that was pointed at us or whatever. It's a threat to the state. When you have that type of environment, though, in a, in a virus situation that affects particular types of people, that becomes incredibly problematic because now what you've basically done is you say, OK, we have communities of people who are the threat. Right. And you can imagine the ramifications of that. You basically have identified, you know, this is this is a group of people in our community um, that are susceptible to this this virus. They are a threat. We know this is a threat, and that has ramifications for how the state deals with it. And in some instances, in South Africa, for example, it wasn't it wasn't pretty, right? There was not, you know, a lot of uh, uh, sort of support for uh, people of this community because they weren't viewed necessarily as victims of the disease; they were viewed as a threat, right? And that's a very different way of talking about people that have have a virus. So I think you're absolutely right. Securitization is a very good way to get a state to take something seriously. You, you frame it as a security threat. The state pays attention to that. They take it seriously. They say, we're going to we're going to attack this with everything that we have. Um, the downside or one of the downsides, though, is that by creating that label, by, by identifying something as a security threat, uh, you're making a political judgment about uh, essentially who the enemy is. Right. And so that that becomes really problematic if those that community is in your state and you normally would would view them with compassion and empathy and and view them as citizens, uh, this is a, a sort of mechanism to, to sort of other them and basically say they're the problem. Uh, and domestically, that can be, you know, fairly, fairly traumatic. Internationally, it's, it's a difficult situation because we have all these, you know, sort of international law built around self-determination and, and non-interference and things like that. Uh, but if there is a threat to the international system that exists in this in this virus, you do need to make decisions about, you know, sort of who is the, the victim here, uh, who are the people that we should have compassion for, and then potentially who are the who are the enemies? Who are the, what's the threat? And, and then how are we going to deal with that? So. Climate change, you know, you can make an argument that this is this is a good use of securitization theory in the sense that we, we take uh, climate change seriously. I think it is particularly challenging, though, with viruses that at the end of the day live in people. Uh, and that that brings some some complications to this this whole idea. So at the, at the top of this this podcast, you kind of framed the debate over the effects of of covid on international relations broadly. Um, and I'm wondering kind of where you fall here. Let's say scale of one to 10, 10, we have a completely new world order. One, uh, the second we have a vaccine, things kind of snap back to the where they were in February. Where do you fall down on the scale of one to 10? That's a really tough one. I think I'm probably a six or maybe a 6.5. And, and for the following reason, I, I look at the international system uh, since the end of the Cold War, since, you know, 1990, 1991, and I see basically the United States providing uh, a lot of public goods to uh, the system. And it's doing that not because it's necessarily a nice guy, but because there's a lot of benefits from, from providing those goods and providing the stability for the system. But I think that over the last couple decades, that started to erode a little bit. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that you have other countries in the mix now who are 
you know, viable options for, for states to, to look to to provide those goods. I think China is an excellent example. You know, one of the things that, that people talk about um, with China is this, as if it's a scary sort of the rise of China. It's, it's sort of threatening the United States. And that, that can be sort of viewed in a scary way, of course. But there's another side to that, which is that you have now another option. Uh, for states to go to to provide goods, I, I kind of think about it in terms of uh, you know Dan Nixon and Alex Cooley have this uh, book Exit from Hegemony, and they they talk about uh, you know the, the United States basically after uh, 1990 or so is like the big Walmart that comes into your small town and is like okay we're the only option you know you're gonna we're gonna buy up all these little mom and pop stores we're gonna sell you your groceries we're gonna sell you your gas we're gonna sell you your tires anything you need we're gonna provide and. If you have one option, you use it, right? But if if a Costco moves in next to the Walmart or a, a Target moves in across across town, now all of a sudden you have a couple different options. And so states don't necessarily need to go to, to to the United States for what they need; they can go elsewhere. And I think if you look at you know something as simple as UN resolutions, or you look at uh, sort of the alliances that are that are occurring around around the system, you start to see a shift from from about 1990 to, to where we are now in more and more states looking elsewhere, not relying necessarily on the United States. Now, interestingly enough, it might be that the rise of Trump is is partially in, in, in sort of reaction to that. So the, the thing that was happening since the 1990s uh, in a sort of decline of the, the United States' stance in the world, uh, or at the very least having you know other states provide for some of the, the things the United States was doing, people said, "That's I don't like that. I want to I want to have you know somebody else like come in that's going to shake things up and, and sort of change that that dynamic." And so in a lot of ways, you could kind of view the Trump administration as a reaction to the the sort of reduction of, of U.S. influence and, and, and to a certain extent power in the international system that has been occurring for some time. Having said all that, I think what's happening now is that COVID has accelerated a lot of these same same processes. So I think you know one of the things that's happening is is around the world people are realizing that you know when it, when when crisis strikes you know going inward and sort of retreating to nationalism and and sort of thinking about uh, that sort of populist view becomes more and more appealing. Uh, and I think since we were doing that already in the United States in 2016 at least, COVID is is accelerating that process. And I think it's going to show us, you know, even even further that China is a, a, a willing partner in providing, you know, public goods or, or selling us PPE or whatever the case might be. And I think they will continue to grow in that in that capacity. So I don't think it's 1989. I don't think it's equivalent of the Berlin Wall falling down. But I think it's uh, uh, something that's accelerating many different processes that have, have been occurring for some time. Um, and and I, I really don't know at the end of the day what we're going to see at the end of this in terms of a, of a structural uh, situation. I think some kind of bipolar distribution of power is 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 likely. Not tomorrow, you know, not in two to five years necessarily. But I think looking forward, we we're likely to see uh, the United States and China in in some kind of a bipolar type of situation. Thanks. Yeah, nobody asked, but I, I think I would say <laughs> I'm I'm around a three on that scale. I mean, I I I think that. I largely agree with what you're saying that, that the changes we're seeing are in the category of things that are just accelerated by this crisis rather than new things because of the crisis. But to me, I keep coming back to this question, does the pandemic change the kind of underlying strategic calculus that countries make when they're determining, you know, who are their allies, who are their adversaries? Um, what are the kind of these global security trends look like? And to me, it doesn't really meet that uh, that test, uh, the the pandemic. Um, and so I, I'm I think I'm much on more on the um, status quo side of of this of this scale. I, I guess I you know I know we're running out of time. Um, I wanted to ask you know if we are moving toward the new world order version of events here, how do we know? 
that that's where we're going. Give me some signposts. What are the things you would see in the world, say, the next year that would tell us that this is the kind of future that we're heading toward versus the snap back to the status quo future? That's a real good question. I mean, I think we talked about one of them earlier in this, this podcast, which is uh, the economic side of things. Where are where are people putting their money? Are, are people continuing to, to sort of invest in the United States? Are they are they making bets essentially on the stability of the United States going forward? Or do we see, you know, potentially people retreating elsewhere? I think another thing that we could we could look at is uh, to what extent countries are allied, um, at least ideationally, with with other countries, right? So, so we think about something like um, UN resolutions that are condemning uh, camps in China, for example, right? One of the things you need to look at is is who signs on to those types of, of resolutions, because that's a nice proxy, I think, for getting a sense of uh, where where alliances are and potentially where we could see strength in, in alliances. I, you could you can imagine going back and sort of tracking uh, UN resolutions in that way and seeing you know whether or not the United States is gaining or losing influence over time uh, and seeing the numbers that that, that countries sort of you know tie, tie into these resolutions because those are ultimately political documents and political documents show us uh, where where people's loyalties are where states' loyalties are so I think that's another another uh, factor and I think finally you know one of the big I think indicators will be uh, this upcoming election in, in November. I think, you know, if the United States uh, sort of doubles down on the Trump administration, it's it's signaling to the international system that uh, this is not an aberration, that this is uh, basically the way our country is going to be run in the United States for the next four years and potentially much longer. Um, and that that might signal to a lot of people, including myself, a little bit of a, of a sea change. Uh, in in the sort of domestic politics of the United States, which will obviously have effects internationally. I think on the other hand, if Biden wins uh, somewhat comfortably, I think that would be a repudiation of uh, what Trump has done to a large extent. And I understand that this campaign has not been largely about foreign policy, but I think there are you know foreign policy questions that that will be resolved with this election. Um, and if if Biden wins, I think that's the United States basically telling the world that uh, the Trump administration was uh, you know sort of an outlier, was an aberration, and we want to get back to to, to where things. Um, were before pre pre 2016. So my my sense is that the the election, you know, combined with a couple of other other things like financial flows and and um, UN resolutions and things like that, they're not great indicators. They're not great sort of um, uh, instances of being able to know where we're headed. But I, I think they can give us some clues as to what's what's happening. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jeff. And we will see you next time. Thanks a lot.